You'll turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We're making our way through uh, the story of what went wrong and what is wrong with the world for Advent this year. And I hope it gives us a, just a helpful vocabulary for what's, to explain what's going on with us as well as what's going on in the world. And the, the image I've been using and I find helpful is that we all have guests at our dinner table that we don't like to talk about. Uh, our sin, our selfishness, uh, death, guilt, shame, fear. They're kind of the elephant in the room that everyone conveniently ignores. And so this is going to help us see why we need Christmas and why we need the cross. And so let's, we're going to walk through Genesis 4 and 5 together, but I'm just going to read the first 16 verses of chapter 4. So let's hear God speak to us. This is God's word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And this is God's word. He has spoken to us today in love. His word is true and trustworthy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we look this morning uh, with, with courage at the, the darkness in our hearts, at the darkness in the world, I pray you would help us see Christ crucified in the deepest darkness, in love for us. And so shine your light on us this morning that we might see how Jesus delivers us from sin and death, that we might become a people like Christ who are willing to forgive, to spread the world, uh, to fill the earth well, with your mercy. 
And for that, we need your spirit to give us hearts that know we are forgiven. And we ask you to do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. I know when I read Genesis 4 and you hear the story of Cain killing his brother Abel, right? The dude has anger management problems. And it's really tempting to go, thank God I'm not like Cain, <laughs> right? Thank God I'm not like other men, like this guy. I mean, I don't, don't you? I mean, that's, everything in us wants to pull away from Cain and, and relate with the man of faith, Abel, to say, I'm not that bad, right? I'm okay. I've got flashes in the pan of selfishness. I have my moments. But in general, thank God I'm the master of my desires and I'm free and I can control my behavior, right? Until you start looking at anger, and, and our anger tells a different story that we're a lot more like Cain than we care to admit. And so God, the wonderful counselor that he is, the great physician that he is, won't let us shrink away from the truth about ourselves, about the world, that, that what has filled the earth and what infects our hearts is this thing called sin. Right? This is the first time in the Bible the word sin is used. And our wonderful counselor is saying, look, if you do not master sin, it will rule over you. And the great physician is saying, look at how sin is killing you. The wages of sin is death. And as this first story of sin shows us, sin is lurking even in the good things we try to do. Right? Cain's anger is in the context of his worship, of him being religious. And so what I want to do this morning is look at this text, and we're going to walk down into the darkness, so to speak, and we'll come at, Jesus is going to lift us up out of the darkness. But we want to look at the downward spiral of sin. We want to look at life under the reign of death, and then hear the call to come to the better able. All right, so let's look at the downward spiral of sin. We left Adam and Eve, exiled from Eden, exiled from paradise, exiled in shame, but they had the promise, the gospel promised firsthand in their ears of that one day one of their children, one of their male descendants, a son, is going to undo the curse. He's going to undo evil and chaos, right? So in Genesis 4, now we hear Eve, she has a son, Cain, and she says, with the help of the Lord. It's quite likely that she's hoping that Cain is the answer to that prayer, Right? with the help of the Lord. Maybe Cain's the guy. I mean, we know the end of the story that he's not. But then she has another son, Abel, whose name hauntingly means vapor. Right? The book Ecclesiastes starts with Abel's name. <laughs> vanity, vanity, vapor, vapor, all is meaningless. You know, His name means like your breath on a frosty morning. It's here and then gone. Right, so Abel, Cain and Abel are the first sons born, and, and Cain and Abel participate in worship. They bring their offering, the fruit of their hard work, to the Lord. Cain brings what he grew from the ground. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, the best. And the Lord is pleased with Abel's offering and not, Cain, not Cain's. Not Cain's, there we go. And Cain is just livid. Right? He's... He's very angry and depressed, downcast, that how would God not accept his hard work? Right? 
For those of us who watched East of Eden several weeks ago in with us, you remember that scene where James Dean, is tr he's trying the whole movie to make his dad happy. And he works his tail off to give his father a gift of a lot of money, $5,000 in 1917, right? 1918, somewhere in there. It's, it's a lot of money. And his father says, I can't take it. It's contaminated. Right? And that, the scene, it's one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the movie. Right? He just wants his dad to say, you love me and you accept me. And he's angry, he's crushed, and he runs away, ready to do anything he can to hurt his father. Right? In a similar manner, for different reasons, right? Cain is mad at God. Let's, let's be clear on who he's angry at and who he takes his anger out on, right? He takes his anger out on Abel, an image bearer of God. This is, this is something he is angry at God for not being accepted. And so along comes the Lord, who's a better father figure, and he comes to Cain like a good counselor, and he asks those great questions. Why are you angry? Why are you cast down? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, if you do good, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So what is God saying to Cain? And what is he saying to us about sin here? This is a really potent, haunting image of what sin is. Because I know just in general, when you talk about sin, we tend to think of it as law-breaking, right? Don't steal, don't kill, uh, or don't murder, uh, don't covet, right? Just don't do those things. Don't do bad. And so we want to think that the problem with the world is that it's full of people who do bad things. But right here in the beginning, in Genesis 4, just outside the garden, sin is described as a domineering, dominating power that infects all of humanity. Right? Sin is crouching at the door. It's a, it's a visual image, and its desire is to rule over you. Right? There's that domineering picture. Right? Do we have any cat people in the room? Right. Have you ever watched your cat? Are you, are you unashamed to admit you're a cat person? Right. You ever watch a house cat hunt a mouse? Right. Where they, they, they crouch way down and they, they stand absolutely still till they think the mouse, you know, the mouse is happily minding its own business until all of a sudden out of nowhere because it's crouching and hidden, it pounces. Or just watch a lion hunting a delicious baby zebra, right? Same kind of bigger picture, right? That's the language of crouching. That's what sin is being described as here. It's a, a predatorial power, if you will, seeking to rule over, pin you down, and control you, right? Humans were made to rule over the beasts of the field, and this is how far down sin brings us, that we imitate the beasts of the field, Sin is crouching at the door. I mean, just look at the story of your anger and how it works. My anger, I'm putting myself in there. See, sin stands at the door and knocks, if you will, and says, you can rule. You deserve respect. Right? Let me in. I'm for you. I will bless you if you let the beast of sin in 
And when you open the door and you bring in this helpless, homeless house cat or what you think you can tame, it turns out to morph into this frightening beast that pins us down and rules over us in thought, word, and deed. But it's still us, to be clear. Right? And so that's the haunting picture of what Cain did. He opened the door, he let this lion, this beastly thing of sin in, and it ruled over him. And he invites his brother into the field, and this once united, one flesh family of humanity, if you will, is now split by homicide or fratricide. Sin is crouching at your door. You must rule over it. And so the Lord comes again. Right notice in Genesis, it's a lot of questions. Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? It's highlighting the horror of what he's done. Right? And this is where you start to see the downward spiral of sin in Cain's heart because Adam and Eve said, well, it's not my fault. Cain doesn't seem to show any remorse. He says, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, hashtag not my problem. <laughs> right? And it's a brilliant question for those of us who are reading the story because if you have Genesis in your ears, God made human beings to guard and protect what is good in imitation of God. And it's gotten so bad that Cain, who's supposed to be a keeper, a protector, if you will, is saying, that's no longer my job description. Am I my brother's keeper? Is he my problem? And so Cain's response is, you could, it's a downward spiral here to what have you done? It's not any kind of sorrow for what happened. It's just grief over the consequences and how it's going to make his life hard. My punishment is greater than I can bear. People are going to see and kill me. Now, what, what does God do for this angry, unrepentant, self-obsessed murderer, yet still bearing the image of God? Right? He's angry at God. He's taken out his rage. This is an act of treason, an act of rebellion, unable what does God do for him? He puts a mark, a sign, a mark of protection in the midst of judgment to protect him from vengeance. It's, it's a pretty astounding act of mercy. Right? Someone who refuses to change, but God's going to say, keep him safe. That's how much he values life. God, is, God in this scene is simultaneously holding together justice for Abel. His blood is crying out to me from the ground. Right? That's where you go with all your injustice. God hears your cries. As well as grace or protection, it's probably a better word, protection for unrepentant Cain. Right? So what is this story teaching us about sin and about, about ourselves, about me and about you? I mean... It's a, sin is a predatorial power that leads to bad behavior, right? It, it, it sucks us into this like vortex of self-obsession that pulls us away from the love of God and love of our neighbor, right? I mean, you, you watch Cain's response to sin. He's getting, har he's more hardened. It's worse than not, it's not my fault, it's I don't care anymore. Adam and Eve at least hid in shame. Cain's standing there and saying, am I my brother's keeper? There's no shame. 
And so you have to rule over sin or it will rule over you. And this is a graphic picture of, of how this happens. It starts small with the seed of anger and runs like a runaway train towards murder in a field. Right? But we know that intuitively, don't we? Right? This is how sin works. Right? You start small and it morphs into something uncontrollable. You, you, you refuse to forgive today. It morphs into bitterness with other relationships that had nothing to do with that original harm years later. Um, anybody who's ever been angry, right? 100% of humans, you know that it gets easier and easier to explode in anger when you cave in once because it feels so good and so right. Or that first time you cave into lust, whatever that lust may be, right? the beast keeps calling you back and saying you need more. I mean, C.S. Lewis is really pointed here in Mere Christianity when he says, everybody has something inside that unless you repent, it's going to make you harder to keep out of the rage next time you're tempted. And it'll make the rage worse when you do fall into it. Because whatever that thing is, here's hope, if you, ser if you seriously turn to God, you can have that twist straightened out. But in the long run, if you just let it go, you're doomed to be swallowed up by your, the beast of yourself. And so, I know this is not thrilling news, but this is the way to see the good news is to meditate on the bad news. Do you see the, how, how sin is a power, not just behavior? Right? If you're not sure, go listen to the wisdom of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, everyone who gets angry and says, ah, you fool, you raka, you moron. That's the seed of murder. And if you do that, you're liable for judgment as if you've broken that commandment. Because anger starts small and it smolders and, and can burst into a wildfire and people get burned. Right? And that's, that's the first thing. Sin is crouching. It's, it's a power. It's predatory, but it's also hidden. And that's the other part of that image. If sin is crouching and you're the mouse or you're the delicious baby zebra, <laughs> you don't see it coming. Right? I remember seeing this movie called Ghosts in the Darkness. It's about man-eating lions as they tried to build the railroad in East Africa. And the story goes, we're all in both broad daylight and in the dark, men are being hunted by lions, and that's part of the horror of the movie. But the point is, nobody sees the attack coming because they're crouching. See, sin rules, it hides, it's a crouching tiger, hidden beast. So, it's not all bad, but this is the power of sin. This is how sin particularly leads us in a downward spiral. And that's how the rest of the story goes in chapter 4, as you see sin ruling and multiplying and spreading. It's not all bad, right? You get to verse 17, Cain gets married. We have no idea where his wife came from, but he got married. Um, there's other people out there that he's worried about. And part of Cain's family, right, you've got the good things of culture. Art, music, skill, and bronze, and iron, right? They're making things that are good for everybody. But they exist side by side in a family full of sin and moral failure. Right? 
And sin multiplies down the genealogical line, if you will, till you get to verse 23, we hear about Lamech. Right? And Lamech says to his wives, some have called this the song of the sword. Right? I mean, just think about this. Now marriage is between two. It's no longer just one. So marriage is already being distorted by sin. God held these women because they're married to a cranky beast. Because listen to what he says. Uh, Ada, Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Do you hear what he's saying? I'm angry. I'm not ashamed. You see that punk kid over there? He punched me. He gave me a bruise. I cut him down. The seed of sin, this is the downward spiral, right? It's now 70 times 7 worse. The chapter ends on a note of faith. As you talk about this, it's like an oasis in the desert. Eve is still blessed. She has another son, Seth. And this is an act of faith. She's remembering the promise. She calls him Seth because God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. She's remembering Genesis 3.15. Right? And then Enosh is born and people start to call on the name of the Lord. And so you have this side-by-side picture of both sin spreading and hope and faith in the promised conqueror of sin and death at the same time. But you can see it started with Adam and Eve, not my fault. Sin is now a power ruling and dividing and harming humans. Now, chapter 5, point 2 here, life under the reign of death. Chapter 5 starts a new section. It's going to lead us to Noah for next week. Genesis is divided into 12 sections that say this is the book of the generations. Right? It's highlighting the fact that God works through families to bless the earth. And so this is the book of the generations of Adam. What did Adam's family bring into the world? Right? What, how does, what is spreading through Adam's family? Here's the good news. Humans are still made in the image and likeness of God. Right? God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And then when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. Human beings, despite being ruled by sin, still have a distorted, they still are made in the image of God. They still have value, dignity. And then you get one of those lovely list of names that fill the Old Testament, where you go, what is the point of that? Right, and you got ten names from Adam to Noah to describe the family of faith. Right, and each name ends with they lived, how long, and he died. And in between they had sons and daughters. But what's the effect of hearing that repeated refrain? And he died, 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 and he died. Oh, wait, here's Enoch. He disappeared. <laughs> and he died, and he died, and he died. All right. That's why Paul would say, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all man because all sinned. 
even, those, even in those whose transgression, their sin, was not like Adam, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Because of sin, death reigns everywhere. But even in that depressing yet hopeful uh, family tree, right, you have Enoch, which is telling you that hope is not lost. You have Enoch who walked with God and was not, meaning he wasn't found. He's the only one in this list who really in the Old Testament apart from, um, was it Elijah who was taken up? who just disappears bodily. He doesn't die a bodily death. And so the point, I think the text is trying to get you to think, is say, look, there is hope even in the presence under the tyranny of death that these things will not always be so. Of a bodily, physical resurrection. Enoch, the New Testament loves Enoch. Enoch is the seventh from Adam. And that number is significant. He went, he entered into God's rest, if you will. It's the number of completion or fullness. By faith, he pleased God. And so it's this idea that even as death reigns through somebody like Enoch, God is giving hope of life after death. That death will not always be this tyrannical overlord that holds us in its grip of fear. Evil and death, suffering and loss, sorrow and tears will not have the final word for all who believe, for all who walk with God. That's chapter 5, leading to Noah. So the question we have, how is that possible? When you're reading Genesis, who is the one who's going to save us from the tyranny of sin and death? Because the world, just in two short chapters, we didn't even finish chapter 5 to get to Noah that talks about we are just suffering under the painful toil of our hands. Maybe Noah's the guy. But it's one big mess because of selfishness and sin and death. And humans need to be delivered from this world that goes not well, from the downward spiral of sin as well as death itself. We need a hero, a better able to come and save us and and that's the last point here that's going to lead us to the table. Right? So if we, just think about this. If we still live in a world under the dominion of sin and death, this is telling our story. Right? People are angry, right? Just read the news. In every city across the country, murder rates are skyrocketing. We no longer have the emotional cushion, if you will, to even be criticized without responding with rage, right? The world is full of Lamex, if you will. And so what's going to undo sin's power? And so in Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus and asks this great question, how many times will my brother hurt me? And how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven times? (laughs) And Peter's thinking he's being gracious here, right? I mean, normally three strikes, you're out. The really sensitive ones, eh, you don't even get one, you're just done. No, but what does Jesus say? No, not seven times, but 70 times seven or 77 fold. 
And Jesus is deliberately using the language of Genesis 4, the language of Lamech, and saying, I'm going to undo the curse and replace anger and vengeance with the grace and mercy of forgiveness. Because in the church, with those who walk with God, we forgive 70 times 7. We are a family of reconciliation, a new humanity held together by, by Christ himself. And so when you're criticized, when we're wounded, when we're offended, when we're bruised, we forgive and forgive and forgive. I'm not going to say it 70 times, much less 70 times 7. Right? And then Jesus goes on to tell this great story that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. This is Matthew 18. And when he began to settle accounts, he brought a servant to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is like trillions of dollars, something you could never by your own ability work to pay it off. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees, begging him, imploring him, saying, have patience. Have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. You got to hear how ridiculous that sounds. That is you or I saying to the United States government, have patience with me. I'll pay your national debt. (laughs) Right? He has high... uh, high expectations for himself or unrealistic expectations. And Jesus keeps going. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But then when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred bucks. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he could pay the debt. Of course, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And when his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger... The master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Here, never. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Pretty pointed story. See, Jesus pictures the church existing as a community of relentless forgiveness and mercy in a world filled with Lamex that there is a healing stream of forgiveness flowing from the Father to us out into the world to rule over us with mercy. And so how in the world do you forgive like that from the heart? And this is where you need the good news of chapter 4, the better able. Because in Genesis 4 and 5, there is foreshadowing as to who and what this person, the Messiah, would be like specifically in Abel, the innocent sufferer whose blood is crying out for justice, as well as Enoch, who walked with God, bodily raised to be with God. See, if you're a Christian, when you come to Jesus, you come to the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, 
That's Hebrews 12. Do you know what that means? Well, Jesus Christ, he came into a world full of Cain's, every single human, all of us enslaved to sin. And what did he bring to his father? A perfect offering. Perfect obedience. In fact, he was the lamb. The best offering, blameless without spot. He offered himself in our place, entrusting himself, entrusting his father to deliver him from death. And in the process, what did Jesus do? He forgave 70 times 7. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was struck for our sins. And he did that while being torn apart by the beasts of sin. I mean, you can go to Psalm 22, and it describes all those surrounding Jesus. He's being crucified as violent animals. Right? The bulls of Bashan surrounding me, they, their, their mouths are like ravening, roaring lions. I'm surrounded by dogs. They pierce my hands and feet. And then Jesus, the better able, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They can't see the crouching tiger of sin. They don't see the hidden dominion. Father, forgive them. See, the gospel, and this is why Jesus had to come, is Jesus, the better able, was killed in our place, taking the judgment we Cain's deserve so that we can be marked by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the better able, which instead of crying out for our justice and our judgment, cries out for our forgiveness. Right? If you're a Christian, you are marked by the blood of the Lamb, that when you trust in Jesus, His blood is interceding for your behalf. That's what we're going to taste here in a moment. Right? It's not saying, be gone from me, like Abel's blood was crying. It's, come closer. I've forgiven you. Before you lived under the tyranny of sin and death, now you live under the rule and reign of grace. Jesus, his blood is crying out for you. All right? So when you bring yourself and all your sin by nature and by choice to Jesus, the mediator, he has to forgive you because the blood of the better able is interceding for you. It's, it's just because justice has been paid by Christ on the cross. Some of us know what it's like, or maybe you're still in process, to continually pray that prayer of, God, forgive me. Right? Come into my heart again. You remember being at summer camp, and it's like every year you've got to recommit and come forward. Did I really do it right? Am I really forgiven? Hebrews 12 is saying, look, if Jesus' blood was shed and you have faith, Jesus' blood is crying out for your forgiveness. And because he is the better Enoch who died bodily, was raised up and ascended into heaven bodily, is sitting at the right hand of God in a body, his shed blood right now is sitting in God's presence, crying out to him for you. He, he can't be against you, because who's going to condemn? Christ's blood has been shed. And now you live every moment under the reign of grace. Jesus Christ himself. And what it does is it sends you out as a person who's pushing back against the power of sin to undo the spiral through repentance and faith because you're a person who's received mercy. And now you get to go 
show mercy. You're a person who's been forgiven, so you get to forgive as you've been forgiven. I mean, just how many times does Paul say that in the New Testament? Bear with one another. This is going to hurt. But forgive one another because you're family. We're sent out as ambassadors of God's reconciliation. And not only that, you too get that promise of bodily resurrection in the new heavens and new earth. You get what Enoch had. So, friends, hear Jesus' words. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He also says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We get to fill the earth with images of Christ. And it starts with us showing mercy as we have received it. And so, welcome to the reign of grace under Christ. It's the good news of Genesis 4 and 5. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for, for Jesus, who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And I pray that good news would strike us afresh, that not only have you delivered us from death, but you deliver us from the power of, of sin and selfishness. And because you, we know you love us, we have the power to forgive. And so I pray you would, by your spirit, in this room, bind us together as family and give us the strength to forgive those we need to forgive. May they see Christ in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.